I'm J. David Miller. Today, I'm joined by Jamie Johnson. And on this episode of George Fox Talks, we're going to be talking about the 19th century Quaker, Joseph John Gurney, and his legacy for Quakerism today. Welcome to this episode of George Fox Talks. I'm Jay Miller, and today I'm joined by Jamie Johnson, who is the Dean for Spiritual Life and a university pastor here at George Fox University. He's also a recorded minister in Northwest Yearly Meeting. And today we're going to be continuing our conversation that kind of helps us understand some of the Quaker background for an institution like George Fox University. Um and we wanted to kick off today with something of a show and tell to get into that. So, Jamie, what did you bring to the studio today um, that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, so I, I lived in New England for about a decade of my life. And uh, one of the things that is, at least compared to here, unique about New England is being able to traipse around to bookstores that have uh, books that uh, date way further back than anything I can find here in, in the Northwest. And so uh, it was uh, while I was doing my master's work studying uh, Joseph John Gurney, among a few other things that I, I ran into a bookshop, I think I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and found this text. Uh, it's the, uh, the Life of J.J. Gurney is the title of it. It was published in, uh, let me get the exact year, 1854. And uh, inside of it is a, a letter that uh, Joseph John Gurney wrote to a friend named Simeon uh, in his own handwriting, uh, along with uh, his name signed at the bottom of it. So, yeah. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And I think it's actually very appropriate that you have a book by, um, you know, the subject of our podcast today, Joseph John Gurney this leading Quaker thinker from the early 19th century, and that it's an old book because what, as I was doing some prep for this episode, I thought I want to read more about Joseph John Gurney, like catch up on what people have been saying about him. And as I got into it, I realized that for such a prominent Quaker, there's a surprisingly small amount of recent scholarship, mm -hmm. which we've talked about a little bit in other contexts. And so I think it's really appropriate to kind of, um, to dig into him a little bit here and talk about his legacy. Um, I'll just give a brief overview of, um, Joseph John Gurney's bio um, and why it might be significant. So he was born in 1788 in England, late 18th century, um, and he lived till 1847, um, the age of 59. And he came from a very wealthy um, banking family in Norwich, England. Um, they had been Quakers since the 17th century, but by the late 18th century, you know, about half of his siblings ended up being Anglicans in the Church of England, and about half of them ended up being Quaker. And because of their wealth, they had a much broader social um, network than a lot of Quakers usually did and were more open to the world. Um, Joseph John himself attended Oxford University. He couldn't attend as a student formally because he was a Quaker, and Quakers, dissenters weren't allowed to be a part of the university, but he had a tutor in Oxford. Um in 1812, at about the age of 24, he commits to being a Quaker um, by adopting plain dress and plain speech. Um, and in the next few years, he becomes a very prominent Quaker minister while he's also doing this banking. Um, and he writes significant Quaker texts and preaches a lot. And he's really kind of known significantly for sort of embodying 
not necessarily founding or even leading, but embodying a sort of more evangelical development in Quakerism in the early 19th century, which we'll get into more. But he travels in the United States in the last years of his life um, and then comes home and, you know, continues to write and continues to support a variety of things. He's he's prominent in anti-slavery work. His sister, Elizabeth Fry, is really involved in penal reform. And so he's a really fascinating figure. Um, and he dies, sadly, from falling off his horse. He falls off his horse on the way home at the end of his life. He seems fine, but then dies a few days later. So um, that's a brief sketch of his life. We'll unpack that all um, in the course of the episode. But I'm curious, Jamie, could you just say a little bit about what drew you during some of your graduate studies, you worked on Gurney a little bit, which is why I thought of having you for this episode. So I'm just curious, what drew you to Gurney um, while you're doing your graduate work? Yeah, um, I grew up in uh, in Newburgh, actually, uh, attending Newburgh French Church. And, uh, and I knew I attended a French church, and I kind of understood what that meant, more so in terms of the way that we practiced worship than I knew mm. any type of sort of robust theology around Quakerism. Uh, but uh, it was a healthy church community for me. It was one in, uh, in which I felt loved and cared for, and I felt like it fit who I knew God to be and what I experienced. And so when I, um, when I finished college and knew I wanted to go to graduate school, uh, I wanted to get away. I grew up in Newburgh, went to school here in Newburgh for college. And so I picked the furthest place I could, New England, ended up out there. And and at seminary, what I found was I was around a bunch of really bright men and women who were there to study theology, many of them to be pastors, uh, theologians, biblical scholars, uh, different paths they were taking. But uh, one of the things that I, I realized is that my experience growing up as a Quaker uh, was something that other people had no concept for, mm-hmm. um, almost no concept for. Um, those who came, and, and they were coming from many geographical areas to the seminary, but those who came from the South particularly, um, the only sort of Quaker nomenclature they had was around Quaker Oats or sure. some kind of you know random association with the Amish. Uh, those who grew up in New England and and who uh, professors who worked at the university had an understanding of Quakers, but uh, not the type of Quakerism that I grew up in. Uh, and at that moment, I didn't, even as a first year seminary student, I didn't quite understand how they could, you know, know what a Quaker was, but that depiction of a Quaker could be so different than what my experience was mm-hmm. of growing up as a Quaker. And so I started to wrestle with uh, what does it mean to to be a Quaker but also not fit into the types of Quaker forms that the people I was studying with mm. knew or understood. And, uh, and so I started to dig more deeply into Quaker history and particularly the type of Quaker history that formed my Quaker experience in the Northwest Yearly Meeting, um, which we would, you know, you could broadly describe as evangelical friends. And, and it was there that I encountered Gurney, um, not for the first time, because I'm sure at George Fox, I studied in history and doctrine of friends, which I took as a sophomore. I'm, I'm certain we studied Gurney, but there wasn't anything about it that connected with me at that point. And, um, and it was in, in that experience of learning more about who he was and how he 
how he held tightly on to the authority of scripture, but also was so tightly, deeply committed to Quaker values. Um, uh, not just the ways that he lived his life, but the Quaker theological foundation that was so important for him. And uh, that it wasn't, I, I think for me at that point, what was attractive as well is that he was deeply, um, deeply formed by a, a robust theological framework. I mean, having studied uh, with uh, top-notch scholars uh, at one of the best universities in the world, um, having spent time uh, not just thinking deeply, but writing deeply, like to, to be theologically formed in that way and to also say the Quaker movement, the Quaker practices, the Quaker beliefs are the ones that, that I feel most deeply resonate, not just with who I am now, but also uh, the way that I think early Christianity was practiced, which is something mm -hmm. that he talked often about, that primitive Christianity. Those were things that appealed to me. And uh, um, and the more I studied him, the more I, I felt that he was the type of Quaker that I was most drawn to. Mm. Um, so that's... That's the main reason. Yeah, that that makes a, I resonate with that, even though that slightly different path. You know, I too had heard of Gurney a lot and knew him, but I think something I also knew was the idea of a Gurneyite or Gurneyism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The idea that Gurney, rightly or wrongly, ends up defining sort of a lot of the kind of traditions of Quakerism, whether you call that Orthodox Quakerism or Evangelical Quakerism, that come after mm -hmm. him. And so something that's been really helpful for me in getting this episode is kind of separating Gurneyism from Gurney himself and thinking about like, what was Gurney about? Um, I think we'll get to his legacy in some of those, those things, because I think it's helpful. You know, I think it's worth saying that the majority of friends in the world today sort of stem from Gurney's sort of theological ideas in some way or aligned with sort of Gurney's theological ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot there that I think may be surprising if we go back to him and encounter him as a person and not just like the idea of a movement or a set of mm -hmm. beliefs. Um, we've referenced it a little bit. I wonder if we might talk a little bit about the world of Quakerism Gurney entered into or what Quakerism was like sort of in the late 18th, early 19th century that um, that inspired kind of some of his own theological ministerial work. So um, how would you characterize that world? We can both talk about it. Yeah, I'm just curious yeah. what, how you would characterize the world Gurney was responding to. There was a sense, especially if we think about the 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 place that the the Friends or the Quaker movement was situated into this deep uh, concern for uh, correcting, noticing, addressing injustices that were happening. Uh, it's not the first time that there's sort of this social awakening to the ways in which people are, are being used as goods and not as uh, not seen as people. So I think there's a part of that um, that's happening. There's a part of, um, there's this growing, especially in England uh, where uh, JJ is growing up, there's this growing uh, capitalism, this sense of sure. wealth that is new, being newly experienced by uh, by that part of the world. Um, there's also, I mean, and it has been this way for a little bit, but this sort of uh, dissolution with the ways in which Christian spirituality or faith has been practiced and a, a desire that we see in these awakenings that are happening, uh, sort of a renewed experience of the Spirit, of the mm -hmm. Holy Spirit, and and how that is transforming people's lives, uh, their families, but also their communities and 
and sending them out to the world to do those things um, in unique ways, in historical ways, right? I mean, when we yeah. look back on it. And so uh, I think those are some of the things uh, that I would point out. But this is also in your wheelhouse too. So what are right, some yeah. of the things Right, yeah. Well, it's add? been interesting for me. I think you're exactly right that he's living at a time of massive social change, mm -hmm. you know, the economic change you reference and, and also the kind of background of evangelical Christianity more broadly, which is kind of pushing against what's seen as sort of like a staid institutional Christianity mm -hmm. um, as George Whitfield or John Wesley might have sort of pushed against the Church of England as it was and led kind of more of these broader revivals that emphasized the Bible and personal experience essential mm -hmm. to faith. But that's kind of the broader context of his broader society in terms of Quakerism. It's been interesting for me as a scholar of 17th and 18th century Quakerism who kind of stays away from the 19th mm -hmm. century a little bit because it gets so messy um, to get into Gurney's world a little bit and think about what he's responding to. So there's a sense at the end of the 18th century or certainly for people like Gurney that the um, Quakerism, maybe like the broader kind of Christian church in England and America needs new life mm -hmm. in a certain way, yep. needs to engage with the world in social activism needs better sort of lay knowledge. So sometimes the period in the 18th century um, that Quakerism is described as a, is a quietist period mm -hmm. where there's a strong emphasis on kind of the sectarian nature of Quakerism. So we're a distinct, peculiar people. We have our own practices. We emerged out of the 17th century as a desire to almost reform the Reformation. So mm -hmm. we're kind of the most extreme or pure end or most fully worked out form of Christianity, even beyond kind of conventional Protestantism. Um, and so our distinct practices of silence, waiting worship, um, the inward light are all really important to us. Um, and so there's a strong emphasis on distinctiveness. Um, but there was also, in a sense, a difference from the 17th century in that 18th century Quakers tended to be more quiet and that's the mm -hmm. name kind of quietists and that they were really focused on silent worship they were less charismatic um sometimes you'd have multiple meetings meeting after meeting where there wouldn't be any kind of speech at mm -hmm. all and so for some there's a sense that this is a sign of society of a religious society that's not flourishing mm -hmm. or not doing well maybe out of touch also with the Bible, not knowing the Bible that well, I think sometimes quietism gets a bad rap. And I think sometimes that can be a little harsh because I think quietism also is the kind of spiritual culture that produces like a John Woolman or mm -hmm. the Anthony Benazet, right? Like you have some pretty incredible 18th century Quaker reformers, but I think there is a broad truth in the sense that um, there was a sense that Quakerism was not as vital as it could be. Mm -hmm. And so I think Gurney with his broader sort of contacts with the evangelical movement, his level of education. That's also something that was really unique for friends. Like mm -hmm. most friends were not educated nearly to the extent that he was. And those, those kind of aspects of his life, I think well equipped him to articulate a kind of evangelically inflected vision of Quakerism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you add to it, his social standing, um, you know, there, just by nature of of being a part of Earlham Hall, where which is what the estate mm -hmm. that his family mm -hmm. lived at was known uh, was known as, that that also held with it a, uh, a not just some cultural weight, 
but also just some significance for who he was and his stature in the world. That mm -hmm. if this person who you know seemingly has, uh, who who definitely has an education, uh, who uh, has money, who has social status, is talking about Quaker beliefs in this way, uh, we're going to be more inclined to listen than if it's just somebody who showed up on a street corner. Like the initial, I mean, like there's this, you know, the early, the earliest Quakers had uh, the element of surprise, shall we say? Like yeah. they show up on a street corner pronouncing things that people had never heard before, right? And then yeah. you, you get settled into the movement in a way that you do maybe, you know, I, I could imagine Gurney thinking like, well, it's getting kind of uh, a little bit mundane or there's, you know, there's, there's, we're missing the liveliness that I see in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and what could that be attributed to? Well, there certainly are a lot of things, but maybe one of the things is that uh, we have lost a sense of the spirit that we see showing up in the book of Acts, mm -hmm. in uh, at Pentecost, the the types of vibrancy that are are coming with that sort of primitive Christianity that um, that we're not exhibiting in in our meetings for silence, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which are still worship, but are are not the type of worship that is getting you know headlines uh, when it's happening. And so I think having somebody who could articulate not just that theological foundation, but somebody who was socially connected in ways that he was, was in in some ways like a perfect combination to make his message become viral. I mean, if we're gonna use uh, yeah. nomenclature from today. Yeah, and by all accounts, he was a very winsome person. Yes, yeah. Um, well-spoken, well-educated, good-looking. I think, you know, his wealth, I think he, was very well positioned to make an impact in that way. I think that's also probably why a lot of friends were uncomfortable. With sure, him. yeah, he was yep, critiqued yeah, because yeah, of his wealth. Yep. Sometimes his speaking, if he would speak in meetings for worship, he would sometimes be accused of maybe being a little too heady uh -huh. or just kind of speaking a lot but not having a strong spiritual basis mm -hmm. would be kind of the critique more conservative Quakers would make of him. I guess as I'm thinking about the context, I think just another important kind of theological context is thinking about coming out of the 18th century in the age of reason, there's also a sense that some Quaker thinkers might be going in a more deist or a Unitarian sort of direction mm -hmm. um, that is not, maybe not, maybe Christocentric is not the right word, but they don't have a same high view of the of divinity of Christ or of scripture as authoritative. Mm -hmm. um, not that they were absolutely pushing those things away, but Quakerism, I think, in the 18th century had been a relatively big tent in terms of certain sort of, theological tolerances or mm -hmm. um and more of a focus on shared practice mm -hmm. and less of a focus or a scrutiny of sort of shared belief um like for example if you look at the 18th century um the main people the main thing people get disowned from quakers for is marrying outside the mm -hmm. society of friends massive numbers of people are disowned for marrying out i think there are only like one or two examples of people being disowned for theological reasons mm -hmm. um so that comes to a head in the early 19th century because some of these, um, what today we would think of as more theologically liberal tendencies um, are clashing with these more orthodox evangelical Christian tendencies. And Gertie's not necessarily involved directly in those politics in um, 
the United States, for example, maybe a little more in England, but he's definitely seen as kind of the leading light mm -hmm. or leading articulator of a sort of evangelical, sort of Quaker sort of vision, which, you know, I think we've touched on. I think of that as he probably, he puts a lot of emphasis on the authority of scripture and also Bible study, mm -hmm. like intensive Bible study in a way that earlier friends didn't. Um, he also really emphasizes the divinity of Christ. Um, are there other aspects of Gurney's teaching that stand out to you or that you think about when you think about him? I, I mean, certainly um, he was one of the driving forces for, I think, recapturing the authority of Scripture. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly if you read the earliest Quakers, George Fox, John Woolman, I mean, they their their journals are saturated with right. scriptural references. Right. So it, it's maybe a bit of a misnomer to say that they'd lost sort of an understanding of biblical authority, but the when when Gurney starts to talk about the importance of scripture, the way that he's talking about it is you is unique, I think, in in the context of the Quaker movement. Because he's drawing on his scholarly he is. kind of background. Yeah. yeah. And um I think the other thing I would add that he that's important to how he did what he did is that he was still very committed to Quaker beliefs. So it's not right. like he was coming along and saying, you know, okay, um, society of friends, wherever you find yourself, you've been doing it wrong. Here's the right way to do it. Right. It's simply like the the ways that your Quaker faith is is being manifest, um, I fully agree with. Like I, I want to enter into the practices. I just think we need to also make sure that we're creating boundaries in essence of how far we're allowing the interpretation of the spirits leading to take us. Um, and, and I think that, that type of boundary making maybe, um, could be said that, you know, was unique to him and how he was doing that there, there's this sort of sense of there is too far, you can go too far. Um, and how do we make sure we don't go too far? Well, however, the spirit's leading should not contradict what scripture is teaching us, right? Which is mm -hmm. a, a foundational sort of evangelical doctrine, but for Quakers, especially during this time, uh, was for many of them blasphemous, right? That they're, I mean, and that's that's why he was, in essence, sort of disowned as a Quaker in many places. That the inner light could only go so far. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we talked about this before, but uh, his, you know, his understanding of justification and sanctification was much less Quaker than. Quakers understood sanctification to be that sense of like, when am I, when am I fully sanctified and in line with, with who uh, the Spirit is calling me to be? How I'm living my life in sanctified ways. Like, for him, it it was much more of a uh, you know a step. Like first we're justified, and then through through our our uh, pursuit of faith, um, then we are becoming sanctified. That that type of sort of repositioning Quaker belief within the larger evangelical theological framework, I think is unique to him in this way. And that's like you talked about the different splits that are happening later on are because of people latching on to that type of teaching or, or that part of his teaching. But even sometimes I think to the expense of, of his utter desire to still practice Quaker mm -hmm. ways of living. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, sometimes like the throwing out, I think um, there was a sense of like throwing out of certain Quaker distinctives in order to hold on to these newer things that were being taught. 
where I think Gurney would say, like, I don't want to get rid of those. I want to hold on to them. I just want to understand them, you know, as bound by or surrounded by, you know, uh, scriptural teaching. Right. Yeah. He's he's involved. I think there's it's interesting because in America you have different quake, you know, different yearly meetings, organizations of friends go in different theological directions. You have some that split in half in England. There's not really mm-hmm. a split. Like England basically becomes entirely sort of Gurneyite and mm-hmm. evangelical for a few decades yeah. for most of the rest of the 19th century. Um, and, and they change later, but Gurney kind of seems to me to carry the day in, in England and the, and Quakerism goes in a much more fragmented direction yep. in the United States. Yep. Um, but he's involved in a controversy in England, knows the Beaconite controversy, where um, I think a fellow, a Quaker by the name of Crudson, um, writes a book. I can't remember. The title includes the word beacon. It's like mm-hmm. scripture as a beacon or something like that. But, you know, almost that almost totally repudiates any kind of spiritual leading and says, like, the Bible's the only mm-hmm. authority. Mm-hmm. And Gurney kind of pushes back against that, even though he is also concerned about people who react more vehemently. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's really he's really a tension-filled figure mm-hmm. as he's trying to, I do think he's trying to create a sort of middle way between distinctive Quaker practices and a more evangelical belief. I, th- I think that's maybe, if I just summarize broadly what's going on with him and the Society of Friends at this time, you know, it'd be going back to the idea that Quakerism emerges sort of as a sort of critique or reform movement within Protestantism um, that's critical of much of Protestant ways of being. And then for Gurney, he's sort of leading a turning back toward mm-hmm. the larger yep. Protestant world and saying, actually, we can accommodate a lot here or where there's actually a shared ground. A lot of that's activism mm-hmm. too, mm-hmm. Um, whether that's anti-slavery work or Bible societies or things like that, mm-hmm. um, that kind of opens up friends. And I think, you know, it, it, it resonates for a lot of Quakers in his time, even though it's controversial. Um, I think I wonder if it might be helpful to talk about what Quakers who pushed back on Gurney's ideas might have been concerned about. Mm. I think my sense, and I didn't get a lot into primary sources for this, it was mostly kind of secondary reading, mm-hmm. but um, I think the big concern of more conservative, quietest Quakers was that people may be studying the Bible, great but they're not actually doing it in a way that is part of their spiritual formation yeah. or it's spirit led. They're just right. kind of racking up head knowledge about the Bible um, and just kind of reading it very intensively without kind of a deep sort of spiritual cultivation mm-hmm. in scripture. I think that would be one critique and then maybe the critique of how that might spill over into kind of worship um, of then maybe you're, preaching out of the Bible just to preach out of the Bible instead of preaching in a spirit-led way. Um, And then I think they were also critical of maybe how comfortable he was with the broader Protestant Mm -hmm. sort of world. Mm -hmm. And not even though he did the plain dress and the plain speech and affirmed, you know, silent worship and disuse of sort of um, the ordinances or kind of conventional Christian sacraments, there's a concern that being too friendly with the broader Protestant world would undermine the kind of distinctive mission and character of the Society of mm-hmm. Friends. Are there other things you think of that critiques of Gurney for in his own time? Yeah, I, th- I mean, 
we talked a bit about sort of the social standing that he that sure. he inhabited yeah. as well, which in uh, you know in England it was much more common for Quakers to have sort of a, a higher social standing in the Americas, not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there I think that that's part of who. But those two things you bring up, I think, are the two that are most often uh, used in in terms of pushing back against who he was and what he did. Um, there's not a strong intellectual vein that goes through the Quaker movement. Um, you know, when you can count on one hand, the people who would call themselves sort of Quaker theologians mm, or yeah. who, who even wrote about it's, you know, that demonstrates that there's not this, um, you know, seedbed of people who are doing that. And I think part of it was a large part of it was because there was a, a distrust of, of the intellect that, if you're filling your head with knowledge, how can God, right? Mm-hmm. How can you receive what God has to say to you? And I think a part of it also comes from this uh, beautiful teaching uh, from George Fox that there is that of God in everyone, mm-hmm. and no matter what your level of education may be, and in fact, even you know some of the um, you know spiritual abuses experienced by those who were most trained academically, right? That, mm-hmm. that that's part of the reactionary movement away from it. But um, that uh, that certainly was something that made him less trustworthy. Um, and, and then I, I think too, I mean, Quakers, even growing up in the French church, like there is a sense of pride that comes from being a Quaker. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. it's not like you walk around with a Quaker badge and people are like, oh my goodness, he's a Quaker, right? But there is a sense of like, oh, we're not that, we're right. not that, mm-hmm. we're this. Um, and and to be so open to other traditions that not just open, but to be able to say like, oh, there's actually some good in that that we could incorporate perhaps in what we're doing, um, I think was, it felt threatening to people, to a people who already felt like they were having to fend off, you know, different worldly uh, uh, assaults in, in different ways, who were already under attack for the ways that they chose to live their life or seen. Even though I think, you know, Quakers have for so long been proud of their distinctiveness, there's also a sense of like feeling attacked or persecuted for their distinctiveness that creates yeah, this tension for, for them. Sure. And I think his ability to say, like, oh, there's good in that. Mm-hmm. let's, uh, you know, let's accept that or let's receive that. Let, uh, let's see the good in that was, it felt, I think for uh, the people who were most skeptical of him, it felt like if we continue down that path, we'll just lose all of who we are as Quakers and our identity. And, and that's not something they wanted to do. Yeah. And I think you brought up a really good point there about his relationship to the broader kind of Quaker theological tradition. And that I think that was another point that made people uncomfortable was he was willing to look at someone like George Fox or Robert Barclay, who's mm-hmm. usually looked to as the main like systematic Quaker theologian and say like, these guys aren't perfect. You know, yeah, we don't yeah. have to like go letter by letter here. Yeah. Um, I'm going to do my own kind of theological development of Quakerism here and do that. And that his willingness to question early friends, I think was another thing Mm -hmm. that made his contemporaries very uncomfortable. Um, Even if he does end up not, even if he does end up, I think as something of a middle way um, between quietism and the most 
like full-blown evangelicalism or even the direction some evangelical Quakers really caught up with evangelicalism wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as you, we, we're starting to touch on this a little bit, but I'm just, in your own study of Gurney, are there any other tensions you think of um, when you think about John Gurney's work? Mm. Or we could also pivot and think, I think, a little bit about John Gurney's, J- Joseph, John Gurney. I always get that mixed up. Joseph, JJ, John, John Joseph. He yeah. probably goes by all of them. Joey. Uh, <laughs> um, Joseph John Gurney's legacy. Um, we're not going to get into the whole history of Gurneyites um, or Gurneyism, but there is a sense that his critics prove out to be somewhat prophetic, I think, in that a lot of the Quakers who are descended from Gurney theologically um, – are much less theologically and in terms of practice distinctive Mm -hmm. um, than he himself was, Mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, obviously you and I, we're not in plain dress right now unless that your black shirt kind of counts as your plain dress. Yeah, maybe it does. I didn't, I really, I really didn't um, dress for the occasion today, but um, we're obviously not in plain dress. We're not using plain speech. Um, Most Quakers don't today, Um, but some Quake, you know, maybe even a majority of Quakers, they don't have necessarily a strong emphasis on the practice of silence, mm-hmm. um, have just sort of incorporated not just Protestant beliefs, but Protestant practices. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious against that context, what we make of Gurney's kind of legacy. Yeah. I've sometimes wondered, especially if we, as we've been preparing for this, what would, what would JJ think about George Fox University, right? Sure. Uh, what would he think about uh, this place that is attempting to, like, rooted, you know, founded by the Quakers, attempting to be broadly evangelical, um, but there's still being aspects of what we do, you know, that descend, it's descended from our Quaker belief. Um, although you have to look a little more, a little more deeply to find some of those things now, but. How how would he perceive? Would he perceive this as a victory? Like, yes, this is what I'm talking about. Uh, not just theological instruction that's happening under the Quaker, you know, not just Quaker moniker, but the uh, you know Quaker ideals. Uh, or would he think no, that's not quite what I intended? Uh, you know, if he walked around here and asked anyone who, tell me a Quaker name or a Quaker distinctive or a Quaker testimony, those kinds of things, it would be hard from just a random person to get something back from them in regard to that. And so how do we, you know, how do we think about this? What I believe is a, an important approach or, or person within the history of the Quaker movement who, who really was, um, you know, serious about his understanding of scripture and its applicability for lives, mm-hmm. serious about his own Quaker practice and faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how, you know, how do we, so how do we take that legacy and say, are we doing a good job of that? Or have we lost either aspect of that within the friends movement? And I think there's just so much, I mean, this was the same for Gurney as well, but there's so much uh, that, we are privy to culturally that it's really hard to determine. Like, are we in line with what Gurney's ideals were? I do think, and we talked about this um, yesterday, but I think there is something that is unique about Quaker practice and belief that is applicable 
to especially to younger generations. So, so Gurney wrote this book here. Um, it's retitled. He didn't name it. Uh, the peculiar people. That's Donald Brown, who edited or uh, revised that work, did. But but he wrote this book here for young people to um, convince them that uh, the Quaker way was the the way that they should follow in their spiritual journey. Like that that it was robust enough. It was theologically grounded enough. Um, and here were sort of the nuanced pieces of that 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 they should hold on to as they mm-hmm. as they grow in their faith in Jesus. Um, and I do think there is even today there is this um, there's this winsomeness or applicability of Quaker belief and practice that does resonate with younger generations. Um, you know, an emphasis on social activism or social justice, uh, this equality of all people. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, you know not getting lost in the uh, you know the structures, but caring about the authenticity of, mm-hmm. of what's going on. Like when I when I interact with college students, they care about those things deeply, mm-hmm. but they have no idea that those are Quaker you know Quaker beliefs that mm-hmm. those are Quaker um, you know testimonies. And so, is there? Does it matter? Uh, you know, at years ago, so long ago, I don't even remember when it was. I, I wrote an article that was titled um, "Quaker uh, Quaker Distinctives." Sorry, uh, Quaker packaging is not a prerequisite or requirement for Quaker distinctives to be made known in the world. Essentially, was my target. Like, you can have all of these good things. You don't have to call them Quaker, mm-hmm. but you can practice these things, and that's going to create transformation um, in our lives and in, in the culture. But I don't know that Gurney would actually agree with that you know, because right, he held yeah. on to that. And so I think that's where the, the rub comes. And there is there is this sense where like, it doesn't matter, I think today in particular, it doesn't matter what something's called. Like what matters is how it's being practiced. So call whatever you want. But if what I'm experiencing is this, then I'm going to be drawn to it. Or, you know, you can call it Christian, but if what I'm, I'm experiencing is like, a lack of love or some type of like mm-hmm. judgment that that uh, feels harsh, then I'm I'm not interested in Christianity, right? So mm-hmm. I do think Gurney would say it's really great to see Quakers today who are committed to Scripture, the authority of Scripture. However, you're missing part of what I was trying to say, which is these Quaker distinctives practiced, named being a part of your everyday lives are important mm-hmm. because they do carry a message into the world that not a lot of other uh, you know, Christian institutions are carrying into the world in the ways that Quakers have done it historically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to remember about him that again, he he commits to Quakerism in his mid-20s. Yeah. You know, and he makes a choice to adopt the more distinctive, yeah. like very much the packaging, if you will, or the trappings mm-hmm. of Quakerism in ways that were probably alienating for him socially mm-hmm. yeah, in yeah, some ways. Yeah. Um, and so he is someone who, even though he's an innovator in some ways, he also makes a commitment to the tradition and ultimately chooses it. You know, in his in his writings about um, silent worship, he kind of puts an emphasis on silent worship as the best form of worship because it protects the most against superficiality, mm. you know? And so I think that's probably resonant for um young people today yep, is, you yep. know, not having worship be something that's superficial or yeah. production, um, that has real depth. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think it's always, 
it's nice to think that we can empty out the form of its content mm -hmm. and put the content into another yeah. form. Yeah. But the reality is, you know, if you think about going back to the idea of the incarnation and the word made flesh, mm -hmm. like both those things are important, mm -hmm. right? The flesh is important. You can't just have the word. Mm -hmm. And so I think with, with Gurney, maybe we need to think about what's the word there um, but we also need some Quaker flesh there mm -hmm. for it to, for it to be meaningful. Yeah. Um, whether that's distinctive theology, distinctive practices, um, and being able to do that distinctiveness without completing, completely shutting off the world. I mean, right. I think, you know, we wouldn't be here as a institution of higher education with a Quaker background without Gurney, mm -hmm. right? Most of yep. the colleges that are founded yep. by Quakers in the U S are Gurneyite colleges, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so there is that great impetus of the openness to the broader world and not being so sectarian that you get um, ingrown, mm -hmm. if you will, mm -hmm. but also recognizing if you completely empty the content out of the form, is it even the same content right. anymore? Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts on Gurney's legacy for today? I do. Th I mean, the world, the uh, we'll say the world of faith that we live in, the Christian environs, if you will. Um, and what I hear from young people is that denominationalism is dead in, in some ways. Like there's, we ask our students every year, what church did you grow up going to? Mm. And we list out probably 15 to 20 different denominations in this survey we send out to them. And the vast majority, over 70%, and we have you know nearly a thousand responses to this survey every year. The vast majority are from non-denominational churches and they put that. Right. There are a smattering of other types of denominations, but when you actually talk to someone, if you can find them, you talk to a student who grew up in a denominational church and you say, what, what about your experience was you know, Methodist or was uh, Quaker or was uh, Lutheran, whatever it may be, right? Um, there's not a lot that they can articulate. There's, it's not that right. important to them. And so there is, I think, this unique opportunity that that Gurney provides uh, in in his life and in his teaching for us that says the form, the form isn't the most important thing. You know, I think he, he would say the most important thing is that what we're doing is centered on the person and work of Christ. But there are some forms that are a bit more conducive to experiencing Christ. And, and to be able to, that sort of openness to other forms that do allow us to experience Christ, which he was trying to invite mm -hmm. the Quaker uh, the society, society of Friends into, like, I think that type of invitational approach can and does work today that, okay, what you've experienced, you may not know what to call it. You may not even know mm -hmm. what your tradition means, but like, here are some forms and practices and things, are, and they're called this. Right. Let's try them, right? That sort of invitation to be open to that, um, that I think, that I do think young people particularly are, are open to, that does provide a good opportunity to rekindle maybe perhaps a bit of that Quaker flame 
mm-hmm. that has been strong at different points historically, and I think still can be. And none of us is going to sit here and say it's most important that people become Quaker, right? We want them to become followers of Christ. But man, the expressions of Quakerism centered on Christ out into the world have done some incredible things. Mm-hmm. And and if we can, if we can be creating similar types of legacies because of this belief that's in Christ that looks and sounds and even is called Quaker belief, like there could be some good repercussions of that into the future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's definitely kind of a Quaker sensibility even that kind of doesn't even, you know, Quakers historically aren't, certainly evangelical Quakers are more evangelical, but historically Quakers you know, didn't always have the heaviest hand in terms of like mm-hmm. converting people. Yeah. Like if you look yep. at Colony Mara, because of a a recognition of God's presence already at work in that person's life. So so yeah, I think there is something to say about just empowering people to go where they feel led. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also a sense of like, well, if I feel like Quakerism is true for me, but not just true for me, right? But yeah. I feel like it's more Maybe broadly others, yeah. the truth. Um the truest expression of Christianity um, that I've, that for me, what I found compelling, shouldn't I also be telling that yeah, yeah, to other are, people right, and yeah. the distinctives there? Yeah. So there's um, oftentimes in kind of contexts like these, we'll talk about Christocentrism mm-hmm. and being Christ-centered, but there's a great sort of term I've picked up from the theologian Hanners von Balthasar who talks about Christomorphism. Mm. So the idea that we need to be Christ-shaped. Mm-hmm. It's not enough just to have like Christ as a, point of reference, but your life actually needs to be taking the shape of Christ. Mm -hmm. And that comes through distinct sort of practices um, of worship and habits. So yeah, yeah, maybe Gurney's a good figure for thinking about how how can we try to wed the the Christocentrism, the belief with also a Christian Christomorphism um, in a specifically kind of Quaker way. so thanks for coming on the podcast today and help us think about that, Jamie. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's been fun to think about, and also makes me wonder how to do what Gurney was trying to do in my own life in ways I haven't thought about in a while. So Good. appreciate that. All yeah. right, thanks, Jamie. Yeah. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.